0: Thank you so much for being here with us this morning. We're in the second week of a new series. And the series is concerning the fundamentals of the faith. What Christianity theologically is all about at its fundamental level. Now, how many of you remember when you were raising your children or maybe when you were being raised, that there were certain rules of mathematics, of English, grammar, et cetera, that you had to know in order to proceed to the next grade and to finally graduate. Do you remember these things? Any of you remember that? You had to know the definition of a noun, a pronoun, an adjective. You had to know your multiplication tables. These are the fundamentals that are required for us to know in order to function properly in the society. Now, I know today everything is changing. There are no more fundamentals or no more right or wrong answers. But at least that's the way most of us have been raised. Well, this morning we're continuing with the fundamental of what we believe as Christians. And Ronald began this last week with the most fundamental of all the fundamental truths that we need to understand. And that is this. Everything that Christianity is, everything that we believe, everything we are to do, everything we are not to do, Every kind of relationship that we are to experience, every kind of a relationship that we should not experience, etc., 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 all of that is to be based on and the result of our faith and our practice as believers upon the Word of God. It is the word of God that is the foundation upon which Christianity, the church of Jesus Christ, stands. If it's not part of the word of God, we should reject it. No matter what we or the culture consider. If it is the word of God, we should accept and embrace it no matter what this world says. Why? You remember in John 17, 17, Jesus is praying. And it's his last prayer that is recorded before he goes to the cross. And in John 17, 17, Jesus says to the father, father, sanctify them. Cleanse them, purify them, save them through thy word. Thy word is truth. And so what we're talking about this morning as we continue and what we'll be talking about over the next several weeks as we move through these fundamentals, we're not just talking about some things that we believe. We're not just talking about, hey, These are nice things. It'd be okay if you take them or don't take them. We are talking about those fundamentals that God himself has given to us and has revealed to us and are absolutely the truth and are absolutely critical for us to know God and to call... And to please him, to be born again into his kingdom, to have eternal life. And so these are not just seven, eight, or ten. I think they're about 13 altogether, whatever they're all. I don't remember the number. This is not just another rah-rah Sunday and a rah-rah summer. This is what we must know. What we must know about God what we must know about ourselves because it all has to do with whether or not we will be saved. It has to do with whether or not we inherit the kingdom of God. It's that important. So this morning we're continuing and we're going to be talking about the most significant issue or the most significant knowledge that we have to have in order to be believers in Jesus Christ, in order to be saved, in order to be forgiven. And that is this. We have to know God's true or correct identity now, that's not an identity that people think about and would like to propose. And, you know, we've had these discussions and the philosophical stuff over here. And we look at this religious system and we look at that religious system. And we take some of this, and we take of that. Or it's not the belief that, well, I think this and that about God. What we're talking about is believing that which God himself declares to us about himself in his word, the scriptures, the Bible. That's what we're talking about. The most significant thing we need to know about God is that he is a trinity. Now, you may have heard that word before, but that's what we'll be talking about this morning, and that's if we understand at least basically And we know who God is in himself, truthfully. Then you see, when we know God this way, we are known by him in a personal way. And that's how we become children of God. So you might ask, why is it so important? In John 17, which I just mentioned a moment ago, Jesus is praying to the Father. And in verse 2 of that prayer... We learn that the father is glorified in the son that Jesus has come to glorify the father. And the way that Jesus glorifies the father is by giving eternal life to God's people. God, the father has authorized Jesus to be the savior of the world and to come and to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins And in doing so, Jesus gives eternal life to all of God's people. And so this is how God the Father is glorified. Eternal life. Now, if I were to ask you this, what is eternal life? Write it on a piece of paper there. Write what eternal life is. Write it down. What do you think it is? Well, there may be various definitions. The probability is many of us, Maybe the majority would say what? Eternal life is described in relation to a time frame. Does that make sense to you? Eternal life is life that never ends. Eternal life is living with God forever. And while that's correct, Jesus gives us the definition of eternal life in John 17, verse 3. And he says this, and I think we'll have it up on the screen. I think we're going to be doing that. Okay. He says, this is eternal life. Now look at the way Jesus defines eternal life. This is eternal life. He's talking to God that they, those who are saved, that they may know you, the only true God, or who alone are truly God, depending on the translation, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is eternal life. It all has to do with not what we have done and what we try to do and how we have lived. It all has to do with whether or not we know God. Now, all of us believe in God. Even the atheists believe in God. You know, I hear believers occasionally saying about an atheist. Well, he doesn't believe in God. Well, that's not true. Because the word of God tells us in Romans 1, verses 19 and 20, that everybody believes in God. And so if you know someone who is saying he's an atheist, please don't say he's an atheist. Say he says he's an atheist. Because there is no such thing as an atheist. Because when God says there are no atheists, what does that mean? There are no atheists. He says he is. I don't know how many people in the world would say, I know God. Probably quite a few. But that's not the knowing that we see in this word in verse 3. The Greek word for know here is gnosko. It is a translation from the Hebrew word yada. Y A D A, and I think this is in your notes. Yada. The first time we come across the word Yada is in Genesis chapter 3. I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. I said 3 in the first service. Well, 4, verse 1. And the word says this And Adam knew his wife, Eve. And as a result of him knowing her, what, what happened? Do you see it? Is what happened? Say it. Somebody you can you can talk. Cain was born. Now, so what does it mean? Adam knew Eve. Oh hey Eve, I know who you are. Yeah, that's Eve. That's my wife. Yeah, she's five foot eleven, has long brown hair, blue eyes. That's I know Eve. Is that the knowing that Yada means? Are you with me this morning? What is this knowing? When it says Adam, Yada, Eve, it is this very personal, intimate relationship where two become one. Where these two people are so joined spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, that they begin to share life in such an interactive flow that they love one another and care for one another. This is what the word gnosko means. This is what Jesus means when he says, this is eternal life that you know, that they know you alone, who alone are truly God. It is a personal, intimate, relational fellowship that God brings us into. And that is what we mean by to know. Apart from that, We cannot know God. That's the way we know God. And in fact, if you remember what the verse says, Jesus says this, this is eternal life, that they may know you who alone are truly God. And now let's stop there for a minute. How many of you remember your English grammar? What is and? It's a coordinate conjunction. You're right. Right. I taught English. It's a coordinate conjunction. How does and function? It joins two ideas, two things, but it joins them and equalizes them. It joins them and equalizes them. And so what Jesus is saying here is that eternal life is to know God, to know him. How personally, intimately, intimately. But then he says, and Jesus Christ. So what he is saying there, here's a man saying this. Here's a man saying this. If you want to know God, you can know him intimately and personally, but you have to know me intimately and personally. Because only by knowing me that way can you know God. Now that's audacious. But that's what Jesus says. You see, in John 8, 19, he says, if you knew me, the same word, gonosco, you would have known my father also. So to know God intimately and personally is to know Jesus intimately and personally. To know Jesus intimately and personally is to know God intimately and personally. In fact, if you don't know the father, you also do not know the son. If you do not know the son, if you reject him and don't believe that, you will never know God in a way that you will have eternal life. Knowing God is absolutely and completely dependent upon knowing who Jesus is. Therefore, knowing who God is in himself. This is critical. So this morning, what we're going to do. Is do what Ronald told us to do last week. We're gonna look over this vast landscape of called the Trinity. And we're gonna go through it in the tour bus and go click, 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 and take a few pictures and move along. And we want to see what the Bible says about this. So let's begin by looking at part of the quote from the little booklet which gives the fundamentals of the faith for Sovereign Grace Ministries. And I want to read this to us. This is a definition of the Trinity. The one true God eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each person is fully God, sharing the same deity, attributes, and essential nature Yet there is but one God. The Godhead thus exists in a perfect unity. Indivisible. In other words, they're not divided up into parts and pieces. Indivisible as to nature and substance. Yet inseparably distinguished as persons who enjoy a fullness of fellowship and love. Yet within this unity, there are distinctions in the way the divine persons relate to each other. And to creation, although there is no difference in essence or attributes. So, what I've done there is take the longer definition and just distill it by taking some of the phrases and sentences and putting them together. So, the first question is this Does the Bible present God as a Trinity? Or is this, as some say, just a Christian invention? Does God reveal himself as a trinity from Genesis all the way to Malachi in the Old Testament and then beginning in Matthew all the way to the end of Revelation 22 in the New Testament? Is this what we see? Well, first of all, the Bible declares God as one God. One God throughout. Listen to a couple of these quotes. Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The word one there is echad, E-C-H-A-D. It means one. But as we'll come back to it in a few minutes, it means more than just one. A singularity in and of itself. I am one person. I am not three people. I am a singularity. I am an echad. I can refer to myself that way. But that's not the only use of the word, which we'll find out in a few minutes. So Deuteronomy 6.4 is the great confession of Israel to say our God, Yahweh, is the one and only God. He's one. He's alone. He's a singularity in himself. Isaiah 44.6, thus saith the Lord, There is no God beside me. So we see that in the Old Testament over and over again. God is affirmed as being one. Here's what the Apostle Paul tells us in first in uh, first Corinthians eight, four in the New Testament. There is no God, but one. And so here we have both Testaments agreeing to monotheism. You, You know what monotheism is? What does mono mean? Hmm? One. What is theos? T-H-O-S. Is God. Monotheism is a doctrine that God exists as a singularity. One. Now, there are three monotheistic religions. What are they? Wait, who? Christianity. Christianity is a monotheistic religion. What is another one? Islam is a monotheistic religion. And what is the third one? Judaism. There are no other monotheistic religions upon the earth and never have been. So when we look at that, what we hear is this. Well, they just worship God differently than Christians. How many of you have heard that before? It's all the same God. Have you heard that before? The Jews worship the same God. They just give him a different name, Yahweh. Islam worships the same God. They give him the name Allah. And Christianity worships the same God, we call him God, and maybe even we call him Jesus. But that's the distinguishing feature. Now, what we said is this. Our reference is not what the culture says or even what we ourselves believe. Our reference is the word of God, the scriptures, the Bible. Would the Bible confirm that the God of Islam and the God of Judaism and Christianity are the same? Would it confirm that? Yes or no? No. And so when someone says that, what is what is it? A truth or a lie? Are we afraid? It's not the truth. It's a lie. Now, when it comes to Judaism and Christianity, both affirm monotheism. The difference is For the Jewish people, monotheism is a partial revelation. It's not the truth because it isn't the wholeness of who God really is. But Christianity is, and we'll show you what that means. So there's only one God. We are a monotheistic faith. We're not three religions in one. So what is going on? In the Old Testament... God's trinity is veiled. We get glimpses. When we start reading the Old Testament, we get little glimpses and we get hints. This God is a little different than being a singularity. Why is he referring to himself this way? Why is it said of God this? And so we begin to get glimpses of a plurality. Plural means what? Two or more. And so in the Old Testament, we begin to get glimpses of God's plurality immediately, as we'll see. And as we travel through the Old Testament all the way to the end at Malachi, God has been progressively and patiently revealing himself, not as the standard monotheistic singularity God that we would think about, but as a unique monotheistic being. And so when we come to the New Testament in the birth of Jesus and we begin to look at this man and his ministry and we begin to listen to his words, suddenly God's monotheism is fully revealed for what it really is veiled in the old And unveiled in the new. So let's look at a few scriptures. Let's begin with Genesis. It's always a nice place to begin. Genesis begins this way. In the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was out form and void. And darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the spirit of God. Hovered or vibrated. Over the waters. And what does verse 3 say? And God said. Let there be light. Now do you see any indication of a plurality there? Well if we knew the Hebrew. We would see something right away. In the beginning God. Bereshit Barai Elohim. The word for God is Elohim. It's a title. The word Elohim is the plural of the word El, which is the singular for God. If God presents himself as a singularity, then he's going to say El. He is a singularity. It means one person. But peculiarly, he is referenced as or he references himself as Elohim, which is a plurality, at least two. So what do we see in the first three verses? First of all, we see God. In the beginning, God created. Is that all of God we see in these verses? Look at verse 2. What do you see there? Do you see any mention of God in verse 2? And what? Thank you a lot. The spirit of God. All of a sudden, we're introduced to another person. And then what do we see in verse three? We see another person. Are you with me now? How do we see that other person in the activity? And God said, let there be light. Now, if you say something, what are you doing? You're speaking. And when we speak, what do we use? Words. I have a real good student out there. And so in this three verses, we all of a sudden see God is not a singularity, but he's a plurality. God is presented as God. God is presented as the Holy Spirit. And God is presented as the word. But you see, it's not clear. It's I see it, but I don't see it. I don't understand it. It's not made manifest. But the hints are there. The clues are there. Remember in Genesis 3, 22, the Lord said, after Adam and Eve sin, Lord and his Elohim again said this, Behold, the man has become like one of us. Oh, wait, I forgot the most important verse there. Verse 26 in chapter 1. Are you, do you see the translation here? Okay, what does it say? Let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Now, who's us? If God is a singularity, whom is he referring to? Angels. He's talking to angels. No, 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 because God is not going to use the angels to create. God creates. The angels are created as is everything else. So who's the us? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So you see, we have some confusion here. We have a singularity, God, so we think. But who's presenting himself peculiarly in a pluralistic way. Listen to this from Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. Remember when Israel crossed the uh, Jordan after Moses had died and Joshua is now in charge and they are going to go ahead and conquer the Canaan land. You remember that. And the first fortress that they are going to face is Jericho. This is a mighty stronghold. Jericho has to be defeated before the other six kings who rule the area can be defeated. So we first have to tear down Jericho and then we can go ahead into the land. So Joshua is preparing and everybody's getting ready. And Here's what we read in Joshua chapter 5, 13 to 15. Now, it came about when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing opposite him with a sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? Now, you see, there's something different about this man. This man is so different that Joshua is concerned. You know, this isn't just another guy standing in a row with a sword. A guy like Joshua, he's finished and we move along. You don't, you're going out to face the enemy. And as you're doing, you see somebody coming in with a sword drawn. What do you do? Hey, let's have a conversation. But he sees this man and he sees in this man, someone very different. But he's a man, but he's greater than a man. He says, are you forced against her? What does a man say? Neither, for I am the captain of the hosts of the Lord. What is he saying there? I am the commander of the angelic fo- fo- angelic forces of God I am the commander of God's angelic army oh my word Joshua what falls to the ground falls to the ground now the significant verse is verse 15 this man tells Joshua take off your shoes from off your feet For the ground upon which you stand is holy ground. Where have we heard that before? Where have we heard that before? Moses comes before the bush that is burning but not consumed. And he hears a voice in Exodus 3 verse 5 saying, Moses, take off your shoes from off your feet. For the ground on which you stand is holy ground. Who's speaking to Moses? The God of Israel. Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. It's the same one. It's the same one in Joshua 5. Yet this time he doesn't declare himself in a bush, but he's standing before Moses as a man. You see, there's something going on in the Old Testament that we're not quite clear yet. Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born. A child is a human being. Everybody agree with that? They don't always act it, but they're human beings. A child is born and unto us a son is given. Okay, this child is going to be a son. Well, when a boy is born, okay, a son is born. How many of you know that? I mean, isn't that normal? You say, what did you have? A son. I mean, Keith, where is he? What do you have, Keith? Where are you? Gonzalez. There you are. What do you have? A son. But a child is born. Okay, the first indication is a human person is born. But then this is a son. But you see, it's not a standard normal, if you would, kind of a child. Because next we're going to get a description of who this son is in himself. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. Okay, he'll be a mighty warrior. He'll be king. Okay, I can get that. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Okay, he's going to be a real good counselor at the church. We're okay so far, aren't we? Look at the next descriptive. This child, this son will be called Mighty God. Everlasting Father. And the Prince of Peace. How can God become a child born as a son? If he's a singularity. You see the hints. Daniel, very important. Chapter seven, verses 13 and 14. Behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the ancient of days. Ancient of days is a. Phrase that refers to God, the father sitting on the throne, son of man, this man, this man comes up to God, the father in the throne room and was presented before him. And to him, into the son of man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. We have a man in the throne of God, a man in the throne of God, sitting next to God himself as an equal who is receiving dominion and power, who is receiving the worship of the people. This is very strange. There's something going on here. God is more than a singularity. That's what we see in these verses. Well, now let's remember years later, a carpenter has been arrested and he's been hauled in before the Sanhedrin and the high priest. And he's being questioned as to his blasphemous statements. That they are understanding because of how he is relating to and referencing God as my father. And how he is forgiving sin. And how he has the power to raise the dead and to heal people and to stop storms. This man now is before the ruling council of the uh, Jewish nation. On trial for his life. And the priest said to him, Are you the Christ? In other words, the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One, that one who is in such a unique, personal, one relationship. Is this who you are? Is this who you say you are? And Jesus says, I am. I am is not just, you said it right. You, you got it. You're right. I am is ego amy in the Greek. It is a translation from Exodus 3.14 where Moses says, what name shall I tell the people? What is your name? This, this God who's speaking to him through the bush. What's your name? And he says, I am. Tell them that I am hath sent me, has sent you. Jesus is saying, I who stand before you am he before whom Moses stood. Oh my God. We need to get rid of this guy. He's dangerous. He's crazy. Lock him away. Give him a pill. Do something. How can a man make those claims to be one with a God and absolutely and completely and truthfully represent him if God is a singularity? And Jesus continues, and you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the father of hand of power and coming with the clouds Heaven, you see, the identity of God is veiled in the New Old Testament. But when we come to the New Testament, Jesus clarifies the reality and the truth of who God is and always has been and always will be. But in the coming of this man, Jesus Christ, God's identity then is fully revealed to humanity in and by this man, Jesus. How do we know God is a triunity? How do we know that? Because of this man, Jesus Christ. We know it because of who he is and what he's done. And we see it in a definitive work of power as total proof, which we'll mention in a moment. The meal before his crucifixion when he was to be arrested. In John chapter 14, Jesus is eating with his disciples and he says, I'm going away. And Philip says, well, Jesus, before you go, could you show us the father? Could you show us God? We want to see God. And Jesus turns to Philip and he says, Philip, have I been with you this long? And yet you ask, show us the father. Did you not know that if you have seen Me, you have seen the father. Did you not know that everything you hear me saying is a revelation of the father? Everything you see me doing is a revelation of the father. Everywhere I go is a revelation of the father. My character is a revelation of the father. My very being is a revelation of the father in a man. Didn't you know this, Philip? And so, let me define the Trinity this way God is one in his being, who exists as three equal, distinct, divine persons, each fully possessing the same divine essence the same divine nature and the same divine attributes. This means that each person is fully God in himself, but not fully God by himself. Now, is that a mind bender or not? Because God, you see, is a community and these three exist in such a unity A relational fellowship through love. That God is literally one in being while at the same time existing as three divine persons. No other religion has this. Why is this so unique? Why? Why is this not found anywhere else? Why? Can someone tell me why this is the only religion of its type that has this doctrine, this understanding at its core? Why? Say it again. I can't hear you. It's true. Listen, it's true. It's not that just these Christians, after Jesus rose again, began to formulate some stuff and try to figure something out. The reason this is alone Christianity's faith is because it is true, which makes every other faith false. Anybody afraid to say amen nowadays? What the culture says and what other religions claim or whatever people or whatever it is that philosophically and sociologically and any other happening out there, if it isn't according to the word of God, it is as put it in the, uh, the, the uh, terminology of John and first John, it is a lie. Can we be clear on that? There is no equivocation here. Either God is, or he ain't who he says he is. And it's not okay just to believe anything about God because it has to do with your eternal destiny. You see, Jesus didn't say that they may know you, God, anyway and anything just as long as they believe in God or whatever. He said, we have to believe something very specific about God. We have to believe the truth of who he is in himself. I suppose one of the most Audacious statements, perhaps the most audacious statement of Jesus in the Bible about his identity. Therefore, about his identity of God is this. John 8, 58. Jesus is discussing who is Abraham among these Pharisees. And, you know, we, we're Abraham's children. We can do blah, 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 blah. And Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. So what are you talking about? You're not even 50 years old. Abraham's been, you know, gone for a thousand years. Or whatever. What, what do you mean? Jesus says this. And 8.58, before Abraham was, that means before Abraham was even here, I am. Once again, he uses the mighty name of God himself, and they took up stones to kill him. So the only way we really can identify the persons of God is not by, does Jesus have a different, does the Son of God have a different nature than the Father? You can say yes or no. No. Does the son of God have a diff- different attributes than the Holy Spirit? No. Do all three sa- share the very same attributes, essence, nature, character? Yes. And each one has it fully. Each one is fully God in himself but not by himself. So that means that if there's any diminution, you know, diminishing, if there's any diminution whatsoever of any attribute, of any aspect of nature or character or essence, if there is any diminution whatsoever in any of the three persons of God, God isn't God. You know, because one of the things the church does occasionally is Make one person of the Godhead more important than the other. Or the Holy Spirit. No, I don't know. But Jesus. Or the Father. That's blasphemy. That's blasphemy. We are to make as much about one person as we do with the other two. None of them are to be diminished. None of them are to be exalted over the other. They all three are fully God in himself, but not by himself, so what distinguishes them? Well, what distinguishes them is are the me, are the roles, how they function in relation to one another in Ephesians chapter one, verses three to fourteen. Paul crystallizes this, the Holy Spirit gives him these verses to describe the roles of the Trinity in verses. Three to um, oh, come on, Davidson. three to six, six. Paul shows that the father's role is to send the Son as his beloved son. That's the Father's role. He is sending the Son. Father does the work of creation through the Son by the Holy Spirit. The father sends Jesus, the son, sends the son into the world to be conceived in the womb of Mary as the man, Jesus. And he's conceived by the Holy Spirit. This is the one whom God, the father loves. You remember Luke 322 in the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus comes up out of the water, what does the word say? What does God say to his son directly from heaven? You are my son whom I love. In chapter one of Ephesians, verses seven to twelve, we see the son's role—the son's role in being sent, in lovingly obeying the father's will—to come as a sacrificial lamb to die for our sin. So Jesus says this in six thirty-eight of John: "I have come down from heaven to do the will of Him who sent me." Now. I have come down from heaven to do the will of him who sent me. When did he come down? What verse is he talking about? Where is the verse that describes Jesus coming down from heaven to do the will of the father? In the gospel of John, very, very, very early on. Remember John 1.1? 1, One of the most, you know, it's difficult to say what's the most important verses in the Bible, but John 1.1 1, 1 is way, way up there. Remember what John 1.1 1, 1 says? Do we know it? I mean, you should know this. You can't know. Sorry, you you should know this because these verses describe God. In the beginning was the word. Now, where did we see that word word before? Where did we hear that before? Genesis one three. God spoke. The word is God's creative activity through His Son. The word is a person of God is personified in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now look at verse two. I don't know if it's in your notes. What does verse two say? Somebody know it already? Say it again. He was in the beginning, he, who the word. So you see the word is personified. This can't be true if God is not a triune God. The proof of God's triunity is in the person and ministry of Jesus Christ. This is not a doctrine that we can take or leave or just a fairy tale that we kind of put together. Then the last verses of that section, Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, 13 and 14. Talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in applying the finished work of Christ. So, how are we saved? If your thought was, I am saved because I received Jesus, I am saved because I asked Jesus to come into my heart, that's not right. That's a description of our response to being saved. How are we saved? We're saved at the cross. When the son of God sheds his blood for our sin. And when he says in John 1930, it is finished. Everything completed forever. That's the moment of our salvation in the resurrection Jesus comes, returns, God the Father declares, I accept everything you've done. I apply my forgiveness to everyone for whom you shed your blood. Jesus is risen from the dead. He ascends into heaven, remember, 50 days later, and he's crowned king of kings and lord of lords and is given authority in heaven and earth. And then from the perspective of in the throne, remember, we saw that in Daniel 7, 13 and 14, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit comes into the world to gather not anybody and everybody, but to gather the specific people of God whom God has placed upon the earth in various places, times, experiences, in various you know, one of male, female, various ethnic groups, whatever. All of God's people are going to be gathered and are being gathered together to be in God's house as the Holy Spirit comes upon us changes our stony heart, remember Ezekiel 36, and gives us a new heart of flesh. That's how we're born again. That's how we become knowing God. And our response to that is the work of the Holy Spirit Giving us, engendering in us, creating in us a great desire, I want to know God. In other words, I want to receive, I embrace, I say yes to this present. You just offer your little child at Christmas a wonderful present and see what that response will be. You don't even have to fight for it. The response is automatic. But the child gets the gift, not because the child did something, but because the child is your child. Therefore, you gave your child a gift, which he responds to because he loves you and he wants the gift. Amen. Are you with me? The daddy doesn't say, look, son, if you want this gift, you got to ask for it first. You got to ask for it first. Now, if you did that, shame on you. So, we said all this, but let's face it. Without a particular event, none of it is true. None of it means diddly squat. We can throw the book away. We can live any way we want. What is the definitive proof that when Jesus says to know God, the father and to know him is eternal life. What is the definitive proof that Jesus says, I love you with the love of the father and the father loves you. What is the definitive proof Come unto me? All you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. What is the proof of all that is the proof in what he did and what he said? Those are not proofs, those are signs. What is what proves that everything that Jesus said about himself, said about God as a triunity, said about us as needing to be saved, etc etc. What is the definitive work that proves it all to be true? What is it? And the women came to the tomb. And the stone was already rolled away. And there was a man sitting on the side there. And he says to the women, Why are you looking for Jesus? He's risen. That's the proof. How do I know God is a triunity? Because Jesus has proved it in the resurrection that what he said about himself and what he declared about the father and the Holy spirit is true. It's true that only in Jesus Christ, a member of the Godhead as the son come to us as a man. Can we have eternal life? The proof is in the resurrection. It's not in your opinion. It's not in the culture. It's not anywhere it's in the resurrection. That's the definitive proof. If you want to argue Christianity, go to the resurrection. They could not find a body. Why couldn't they find Jesus body? Why he rose from the dead. He ain't there. They don't have his bones because he wasn't, you know, he, he didn't, he was buried, but he returned. And at the end, Of the 50 days, sorry, 40 days, Jesus gathered the disciples. and We saw the example of this morning, and he's going to leave them, and he gives them a command. He says, this is the way I want you to constitute my church. I want to constitute the church in a way that the stamp of God's triunity is embedded upon, is imbued in, is revealed through this church I have saved you to be my people who will be imaging clearly and compellingly and consistently that I am a triune God and so what does he do he gives them baptism as the declaration that we are now in fellowship we now know this God who is truly God in himself And he says, baptizing them, what? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Did you notice what he did not say? He did not say baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why? Because the same person could have many titles. I mean, look at me, for instance. I have various titles. I'm a human being, I think. Some would dispute it, but it's okay. I'm a man. I'm a husband. I'm a dad. I'm a grandpa. I'm a teacher. I'm a pastor. I'm an elder. And most of all, I'm the old man. Now, there are 10 titles I have, but how many people? So Jesus specifically puts the, what do you call it? The, the, um, there it is, there it goes. The definite article, the, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit to make sure that we are distinguishing that the church is going to be representative of this divine community. So let's finish it like this. Why is knowing God so important? What's the first point? Why is knowing God so important? It's the truth. Can you say amen? It's the truth. Secondly, by knowing the truth, we come to have eternal life. You cannot have eternal life if you do not believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, and that he is a member of the triune Godhead. Period. Period. Amen. This is not a take it or leave it. Knowing God means that those who have been born again are the image to image the love that exists among the persons of God. The relational activity of these three persons of God discloses the glory of God's triunity for us. Listen to how Bruce Ware describes this relationship within God. The father and the son and the Holy spirit relate to one another in a fellowship of perfect unity as equals. Now we are the triune. We are the image of the triune God. Every one of us is to be imaging in myself and through myself and with everybody else in the community of God, who God is in himself We are to be living in a way that our relationships, what we do and what we don't do, how we think, everything is to be clearly reflective of the truth of who God is in himself. It comes down to that. God has saved us for this purpose. So we would be living images, Genesis 126, of who he is. Otherwise, we shouldn't be saved. We don't need to be saved. We're saved for that one purpose. So they live and relate to one another. Perfect unity as equals. They love one another. They respect one another and enjoy one another. Now, let's think about our relationships. Do we respect and enjoy everybody in the church? They support one another. Hmm. They cooperate with one another. Hmm. They assist one another. They honor one another. They communicate with one another. Phil this morning read other attributes from Colossians. This is all about God. It's all about revealing in ourselves and among ourselves who this God is so that he may be glorified in that knowledge. So that's why we read these words in 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us will love one another. Why? Because love is from God. Everyone who loves, that's the word agape. That's God's kind of love. Everyone who loves is born of God and he knows God. Chapter 5, verse 1 of that 1 John. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. See, this is the reason. We need to know that God is a triunity because it's true because our eternal existence depends on it. And we know this because of what Jesus has done to the cross and has given to us through the resurrection by the Holy spirit. This morning we're sitting here and you're listening and you may be feeling inside. I've never understood this, that, I need to know God this way. I've known God. I went to church all the time, but God was over there. I'm over here and you know, okay, fine. I've tried to live the best I can. I've not done this, that, and the other, but you see, none of that is knowing God. We come to know God as God by his spirit places within us a great burning desire to know him, to fellowship with him. That life is nothing without him. If this morning you're sitting here and something's happening on the inside of you, you're feeling something, you're experiencing something on the inside, and you're beginning to say, wait, I want, I want to know Jesus. I want to have fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I want to experience this fellowship of this triune God, I want to be forgiven. I want to have eternal life. I want to go to heaven. If you're feeling maybe for the first time, those, those emotions, those thoughts, I want this. I want, I I have to have it. I have to have it. That's the Holy Spirit working in you Moving in your heart, giving you the gift of eternal life. And what is happening is, as the Holy Spirit right now is working in your heart, he is stirring up your feelings and emotions and creating in you a desire to know God through Christ. That's what's happening. It's not because you are saying or doing anything. It's you are being moved upon by the spirit. And now you are being called to or your response is being elicited. To embrace, to receive what God is doing. You may be here this morning and that's what's happening. Well, I'm going to close this way. I'm going to close in prayer. And we're going to pray. And if this is how you are feeling if this is what's going on in your heart just want you to follow along and if you want to repeat it it's up to you but follow along and be in heart agreement with this prayer because if that's what's happening God is for the first time birthing you into his kingdom so that you will become an eternal son with the rest of his family let's pray and you follow along and be in agreement if this is what's happening in your heart Jesus, for the first time, I'm realizing I really don't know you. I've been raised in church. I've known a lot about you, but I don't know you. I don't have that personal, intimate, face-to-face friendship, fellowship with you. And I want to have it. There's something in me that is yearning and crying out, oh, Jesus, do this work. Save me. I'm embracing you. I'm receiving. I am saying, yes, yes, forgive me. And give me eternal life. Father, if this is happening, we're asking you right now to cause these To respond by faith to say yes. If you are feeling this way. Your response is yes Jesus. I receive this gift. I embrace you as my savior. I turn my back on all my sin. My past. My self-reliance. And I embrace you. As a child. Because I'm being embraced by the father. To be his child. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus, for giving me eternal life this morning. And I will praise you all the days of my life as we walk together by the Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you for being here this morning.